Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Chris O'Fall. I'm the deputy editor of Film and TV Craft at IndieWire, and my guest today is Alex Garland. Uh, we, of course, know Alex from all the incredible sci-fi movies he's either written, uh, like 28 Days Later, or the ones most recently that he's written and directed, like Annihilation and Ex Machina. Alex has now dipped his toes into the world of TV with the FX series Devs, uh, which he wrote and directed all eight episodes. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. And today's podcast is brought to you by the Apple TV Plus original series, The Morning Show. The drama series explores the cutthroat world of morning news and the lives of the people who help America wake up in the morning. It's told through the lens of two complicated women working to navigate the minefield of high-octane jobs while facing crises in both their personal and professional lives. It's starring Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon, Steve Carell, Google Matara, Billy Crudup, and a very funny Mark Duplass. It's for your Emmy consideration in all eligible categories, including outstanding drama series. And I, I know they just listed off this wonderful cast, but you know that wonderful cast was put together by uh, casting director Victoria Thomas. And I'd be remiss on the Filmmaker Toolkit podcast if I didn't mention, uh, you know, there's a lot of our favorite artisans working on this show. Carter Burwell's one of the best composers going. It's a Filmmaker Toolkit podcast, so I thought I'd editorialize. Anyways, uh, it's visit fyc.appletvplus.com. Your show and, and your films in general ask us to engage so much in, in some in various ideas about science. I'm curious very much from your writing process, how much do you as the author need to have a, a full comprehension of some of these these kind of heady ideas in, in, in writing it? Or is it, is it more that they spark story ideas versus a complete understanding? Well, um, uh, typically the ideas um, are not open to having a full comprehension of them anyway. Um, uh, I mean, in the case of devs, a lot, it, it, it's all really, it, it, the, the true science that's in there is all, interpretations of things and theories about things and speculations and nobody has a a comprehensive uh understanding of quantum mechanics or uh the world would be in some respects a sort of simpler place um uh so what i do is i approach it as a lay person and i do the best i can i read as much as i can and i watch as much as i can and i i just try and uh i try and sort of push forward my my understanding to its limit. And then what I do is I test it on people who are more knowledgeable uh, and smarter than I am and, and, and reach a point where I think it's not so much that this is right, because I don't think you can say what's right or wrong, but, but what you can do is, is say this is fair. This is a fair account. So that, that's what I aim for. And kind of the inverse of that, because I imagine from a writing standpoint, then the pro- then the question becomes, how much do we, the viewer, need to understand, right? Because there's an element of, you know, I don't know much about quantum mechanics, and I, yet I and and yet I feel like I'm being engaged in this idea in a, in a complex way, but in a way that it's like obviously the story is not going to come to a screeching halt with exposition. So I imagine that. And and you're writing that becomes also a balance of not only how much you understand, but then what what gets synthesized to us, right? Yeah, um, there's definitely a balance, but but I t- I tend not to think of the viewer in the balance. I, I sort of assume a certain kind of viewer, uh, a sort of patient, curious viewer, I suppose, um, and it, it's more to do with story bandwidth, actually. There's just a limit to how much, how if you want to 
to maintain certain kinds of characterizations or or uh, certain kind of plot development, then there's just a limited amount of time within an episode you can spend in a kind of discursive way about a particular element of quantum mechanics or AI or whatever it happens to be. So um, uh, what, what I do want, though, is that if a viewer is made curious about it and then they go on to Wikipedia or whatever sort of form of research they, they like, um, that... The, the starting point that the show might have given stays true. Uh, if, if, if it's a show which is primarily ideas-based, which is what Devs is, um, if, if I distort the starting ideas, then, or if I distort the foundations, then any of the discussion of the ideas is sort of pointless. Um, so it, it, it's, it's, about, it, it's about kind of, yeah, try, trying to be... I'll just go back to the same word I did before. It's about being fair as much as possible. Mm-hmm. One thing you do in devs, and you've done it throughout throughout all your films, it, but devs it really struck me as being so strong is that we're drawn into this. What what is this? What what is this? And it's a mystery, and the mystery often feels like it could be potentially bigger than even our imagination. It's as intriguing as it is, you know, being in Sergey's uh, shoes and and walking through the woods and wondering what that thing is going to be, and 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 you're able to maintain that uh, throughout so much of of the series. You know, maybe this is an unfair question because maybe it's just an instinct. Um, of yours as a storyteller, a natural instinct, but it strikes me that that ability to, to create that and to keep that mystery and, and that question of what it is also is, is a magic ingredient for, for where, for where you want to go as a storyteller. And it allows you to kind of do some of the things like kind of slip into the surreal um, because it, it just, it, it's such an, if once you have that in an audience, you can do so much with them. Well, I, I think one of the things is that often, with with the ideas that are contained within devs, which are not my ideas, they're other people's ideas. Mm-hmm. They 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 have they have so much magic in them, and they are surreal. They're all very counterintuitive, very very hallucinogenic. Actually, it's a it it's a it's a hallucinogenic concept to think that that you and I um, have a near infinite number of versions of ourselves having this conversation um, and some of them are wildly different and some of them are essentially identical. And as soon as you start having that thought and treat it not as a conceit of a science fiction story, but something that might actually be the case, Mm -hmm. you're into a world of hallucination, partly because it's not really comprehensible. It it becomes like talking about distant galaxies. It's it's just more than our... uh, it's more than our hardware is equipped to to get at. So, so I, I guess I in a, in story terms, I get a kind of free ride with that because because the magic and the hallucination becomes embedded in the thing that's contained. It's just it's just there by telling the story. It's there. Um, I, I I just would say though that that I also I think when I talk about devs and I've I've got no problem continuing to talk this way. I. I often end up talking a lot about science and philosophy, determinism or quantum mechanics or whatever it happens mm-hmm. to be. But, but also um, there, there are attempts within it to get at more human stuff. You know, um, uh, you, you have a protagonist 
who's suffering from grief and and grief uh as as a dominating feeling is as strange and hallucinogenic as uh many worlds interpretation so if you see what i mean so mm-hmm. uh um, but so, sorry uh, that's a sort of digression but but it just occurred to me while we were talking that actually uh grief is hallucinogenic um bereavement is hallucinogenic as well i'm curious and maybe this isn't maybe these two ideas aren't connected but you know the idea of starting this story uh, with Sergei in kind of a, a subjective, like this is going to be his story way, yeah, and then obviously a, a, a shift to to Lily being more of the protagonist, um, it works, and so maybe that in, that in and of itself could be the reason, you know, a justification. But it also seems as if maybe uh, that was also a very intentional way of how you wanted to experience us uh, to experience and be introduced to this world. Yeah. Um, uh... And so, some of that is, it, it's, I guess all that stuff is intentional and some of it is just playful. Some of it sometimes is a bit political, actually. It's to do with um, uh, assumptions that people make about protagonists or assumptions that people make about tech leaders. But one of the things that interests me in Devs is there's a line in it where someone says very, very clearly about Forrest, the boss of the company, they say, uh, he's not a genius, he's an entrepreneur. But I also noticed that people always reflectively still talk about him as a genius, even if you've stated very clearly he's not a genius and you've shown the people who actually are the geniuses. And um, uh, so, so sometimes it's about trying to sort of mess about with, with the preconceptions that people come into things with. Sometimes those preconceptions are very, very hard to shake anyway, even if you're quite explicit about it. it in, in the case of Sergei, I knew perfectly well if I start the story with this handsome young man, um, everybody's going to assume it. it I, I mean, it, they're being offered it that way, but nobody's really going to question it. And so, so it's it's a it's a it's it's when it, it's I guess it's another of the free gifts that genre and story convention give you. You just get an easy subversion you can get out of it, um, an easy hook, I guess. You know, one of the things that in particular Ex Machina comes to mind, you know, that Norway location and that home lab built right into the cliff there or whatever that was, it's inseparable from how I experienced that story. And I think that goes for a lot of a lot of your your fans and viewers. I'm curious about devs because it has that uh, recognizable San Francisco Silicon Valley um, element to it. And that's important to the story and, 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 and the idea of what Forrest has created here. Using a recognizable world, a world that exists, because then also this idea of how that's going to become a stage for something. And I have to imagine stage for, for devs and for this more surreal element I, I'm curious about that balance that you found, and I want to talk about some specifics as we go along. But I mean, I mean, part of it I have to imagine is even just starting it in, okay, the woods and this idea is going to be this kind of first this bridge between the two, right? Yeah, it, it's it's a decision. I think it's a decision you often have to make within science fiction. Um, if, if you're going to bring in a bit of future tech, are you going to bring it into our world, or are you going to bring it into a projection of our world, and um, it, it's amazing what flows from that decision. So you end up having to redesign cars and coffee mugs and doors and stuff like that. But but I think that the one of the key points in devs was to say that some of these ideas or all of these ideas 
don't relate to some notional dystopia. They actually relate to us explicitly right now. And, and in some respects, you could, if I'd written it in the 70s, I'd have set it in the 70s. Um, and it's a fundamental bit of grounding, really. And it, it, it also, I guess it, it has the idea that, um, uh, that, that we are, that we're moving into the future very, very quickly. So there's no need to project it to flying cars and hoverboards or whatever the fuck it is. It's, it, it, we're, we're, we're in that state right now. And, um, uh, it, it would I, somehow everything would have got weaker for me. I think the whole story would be weaker if it had been thirty years in the future. Mm-hmm. What about uh, the building itself, Devs? Um, I, it's an incredible piece of um, it's an incredible piece of art. And I, I saw in another interview you talked a little bit about science as poetry, and I have to imagine this is a little bit uh, collaboration with Mark uh, Digby here about how to. You know, I'm sure you have an idea in your head. More than Mark. I mean, it, the the way the way we work, there's there's really a large group of people feeding into that. Um, uh, Andrew Whitehurst, the visual effects supervisor, Rob Hardy, the DOP, Mark Digby, and also Michelle Day, who who is who who has a a credit which actually relates to props, but she has as much to do with production design as anybody does, and. Uh, I often think that the credits on the things I work on uh, are misleading. They're, they're sort of conveniences, really. But, mm-hmm. but what, what you've got is a large conversation between a group of people. And so, yes, absolutely, there's, there's the idea that the scientific heart of the space is also the most magical and lyrical and sort of poetic area within the, the story. There's other stuff too, though, which is I think that um, the, the whole... The whole conceptual idea of devs, which is to to take real principles of science and 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 sort of run with them a bit, is is embedded within the production design because the uh, the the metal structure at the core of the cube is based very very closely on an actual quantum computer. If you strip away the housing. Um, so if you're able to look inside it, you'd see something that looks very like that. Um, and, uh, and, and, and a lot of it came from practical things. So, uh, I, I was having conversations with people about what quantum computers are susceptible to vibration and interference and stuff. So housing it in, in a shield, in a vacuum had a kind of sense a friend of mine works in a in a very sort of high up capacity in artificial intelligence and he was also he talked to me about what you do to keep information in a place so not just protect the machinery but also stop things from getting out and and what 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 sort of processes might be involved there um which actually led to one of the the rather sort of simple funny things which he said that the one thing you can't do anything about is just people and ultimately, you just have to trust the people that are in there um, mm-hmm. and and go with that. Because if you're going to involve people, well, you either trust them or you don't. And if they're in, you've got to trust them. So, um, But the vacuum seal and the lead shielding and the, uh, the gold cage, which is sort of, you know, all of those things are, are, are based on practical conversations. 
And then everyone together from from the gaffer, you know, who's who's the person in charge of the lighting and the director of photography and all, all of us, how do we make it practical? How can we easily stick a camera on it? Um, how do we avoid having uh, 6,000 visual effect shots, which we'll never afford to do? So how do we how do we make the thing outside the window the thing, you know, and... Uh, and uh, sorry, it's probably a very long-winded way of saying no, no, no. It, 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 it's, it's a rolling conversation between a large group of people and all of the people have voices and they're all giving input, you know. I'm curious what it, maybe it's because it's such a, an incredible piece of work and, and, and your visual effects are often very well masked. What, what is the visual effects aspect of, of the interior of devs? So what we did was we built in, on a very, very large soundstage in the north of England, um, a, a bigger sound... We wouldn't have been able to afford a soundstage in the London area like that, partly because they're pre-coronavirus. They were all taken up by Star Wars and Marvel and mm-hmm. so on. Um, so what we did was we built a, a very, very complete 360-degree set. You could look up, down, left, right. Um, the... Uh, so an example of the visual effects would be there is a, a glass elevator that would slide between the airlocks. Um, that had a bit of scaffold under it and eight, eight guys pushing it along train tracks. And then the visual effects is to remove the scaffold. And the, the one thing we couldn't do is we could deal with everything uh, within, within a particular plane. If you imagine the Dev's Cube as being like a three-story building, we could build the middle story and a half 360 degrees but we couldn't build the top and we couldn't build the bottom and so every time you're on a wide angle lens and you see the bottom or the top of the cube visual effects is taking over at that point um but but if you were sitting there in a room um uh with the gold pulsing behind and somebody backlit or side lit by the gold and their monitor all of all of that is just in camera Sometimes visual effects, we had a lot of glass, so people were tidying up reflections. Yeah. But, but basically, it was in camera um, as much as possible. And what about the uh, projections themselves? The, um, you know, the, the Marilyn Miller uh, sex tape, you know, Christ on the Cross. And I, I have to imagine there's an element here of um, how do you it's one thing for you to have that conception in your head, right. While writing it, but it's another thing of how to make this for lack of a better word, believable. Right. And not some like hokey thing, like, right. Cause there, there's a lot of ways that could go wrong. I have to imagine. Yeah, there's a lot of ways. And, and also it was something that we wanted to be, um, we, we wanted it to be very, it, once you're inside that cube, there's a lot of emphasis and there's a lot of effort on behalf of everyone making the thing to create a sort of hypnosis state with mm-hmm. pulsing lights and certain certain degrees of brightnesses and and strange multi-reflections. And the projections had to fit within that when they were in that black and white state. And so, so it, it's partly an attempt to represent something and to say, well, here is an image that... Uh, the number of variances in the image are making it imperfect. But then mm. what's a beautiful way of doing that? And um, uh, th- that that was largely a collaboration between me and Andrew Whitehurst, who's the visual effects supervisor. Both of us 
uh, like photographs, still taking still photos. Both of us like shooting on film. Uh, that if, if you were to look really hard at the grain of a black and white photograph and then animate it, you'd have something that would start to look like those those images. Um, and then also we had to give them dimension because they were 3D images. So and you had to create sort of complicated point clouds and stuff. But but it, it, it's sort of I remember the task that Andrew and I set ourselves and it was the first shot that he executed was how you get um, Marilyn Monroe and Arthur Miller having sex without it being pornographic. And yeah. how, what do we have to do to the image where it's very clear what's happening, but it's, it's, um, uh, it's, 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 it's become sort of like an art installation in some respects, and it's left behind the sort of vicarious sort of, oh, look, there's Marilyn fucking Arthur, you know, it's a, and, and sort of push that to the side because, because it would sort of break the scene in a way. And in a, in a way, it would also devalue the sort of running joke that's going on underneath it in the, the conversation between Katie and the two technicians, Stuart and Lyndon. Even the angle itself, right, because it can't feel like webcam, like, like you know, eagle eye type thing, but it also can't feel too direct it has to be you know it, 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 it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting challenge to think about how how you're going to do that it's that that was another thing we spoke about a lot um partly because i'm a video gamer um mm-hmm. and i'm very used to controlling a camera in a in a video game and what you have is a 3d representation and you're swinging the camera around to see the thing you want to see. You do it habitually. And actually, in some respects, what that machine is doing is just creating a 3D landscape that you could swing a camera around. I, uh, th- that, that, was, that was the way I approached it. But at the same time, I also thought there's a limit to how literal you can get with this stuff. And in a way, it's like if you... what We shot that. It was just me and uh, Sam, the grip, in the room. And he was using a a bit of kit called a stable line. So it's, it's, it's a bit like a crane uh, head, which, which Rob, the DOP, can manipulate using joysticks in another room. And Sam, the grip, physically holds it and moves around. And, and pretty quickly, I thought, I'll screw the logic. Let, let, let's, let's just make beautiful, sweeping images and, and, uh, and n- not get too hung up on the sort of uh, specifics, really. I want to talk about how um, you and uh, Rob Hardy worked on this film in the sense, you know, I read some old interviews from um, Ex Machina and Annihilation and that idea that, you know, so much of like figuring out the visual language of those shows in terms of those movies was was an element of less storyboarding and more being in the space and and staging and rehearsing. And obviously, you know, you directed all of these. We were talking about Andrew, Mark, and Rob. You worked with all those, your same collaborators. But I'm curious in, in, in the sense of in an eight-series, uh, you know, longer story, was, was that approach that you and Rob took similar? It was identical, oh. yeah. And in fact, if we hadn't, if we hadn't had that approach, so so the approach, just to be clear, basically what it is, <clears throat> at, at the start of the day, I, I've got no notes. I haven't planned anything particularly in my head. Uh, at the very, very top end of the day, uh, um, I get on set with just me and the actors and we rehearse it. And very often the rehearsal is 
is not me saying to the actors, do this, do that. It's me trying to figure out what the actors want to do in the space. One, one of the problems from my point of view with storyboarding is that you end up saying to an actor, well, we want you to stand by this window because then we're going to do a slow track into your face. And what if the actor doesn't want to stand by the window? And um, so there, there's something sort of non-organic about it. It's, it's not judgmental. I don't, I don't care how other people make films. If that's right for them, that's right for them. But, but for me, it, it doesn't work at all. And then once the actors have figured out how they want to do it, then we do a lineup where the crew comes in and we all watch it. And then at the end of that, Rob and I start discussing how to shoot it. And all I can say is I've never really had a day where that method has been a problem, including when there's action to shoot. It, it, action's tricky, but but broadly speaking, as a methodology, it works perfectly well. What What I... It, it turned out to be very good training for devs because there was just so much of devs to shoot. It, mm. it, it, it was relentless. The speed of shooting is very, very quick. Um, and the length of time is very, very long. So you have this weird sprint marathon state you're in the whole time. What I do remember is at the very start of the shoot, after the actors had rehearsed and we'd done the lineup and the crew and everyone had watched it, Rob and I would sit down and um, uh, sketch out very, very basic, like mini boards of really as part of the discussion between me and Rob and the first AD so that everybody had a clear idea of what shots we were going for. By about a third of the way through, we'd completely stopped doing that. We'd stopped all of our timings during the day. And we, Rob and I got to a very kind of telepathic state, I would say, um, where we just literally had to look at something and then nod at each other. And then we'd be, you, you know, Rob would be bringing up a finder. And, and it, it, so it, it, it got very, very quick and, and very, yeah, very kind of telepathic. And, and broadly speaking, that seemed to work. I can't think of a day when we ever came unstuck doing that. Um, so it's loose. It was. It's quite a loose way of shooting. And just for what it's worth, if you're interested in the technical stuff, um, uh, you might think that that way of shooting means that you go over at the end of the day, uh, as in you run over your shooter, you go into overtime or whatever. I, I think we ran over five days in seven months or something. So it, it, it's a loose way of shooting, but it's also kind of tight. Sorry, that might be really boring and technical. No, no, this is the stuff that we're interested in, because I'm also curious, though, because it's like there's so many scenes in the same location over the stretch of the eight. Would you shoot out a location? Would you shoot in blocks like that, where it's like you did all of your interior? Yeah, yeah. We, we, we had to, yeah. So, because I imagine there's also this element of, um, and you've done it effectively in the movies, too, of like, you're not going to shoot these characters in the same way. And so there's also an evolution of, of how that language adjusts inside Lily's apartment or inside devs and things like that. So I imagine that's also part of it is, is going chronologically through the story and through the space too. Right. So, so it's, it's, yeah, exactly. It's cross border where it's blocked out into. So yes, we shoot out sound stages, we shoot out locations, but then within that we stay very strictly in sequence Mm -hmm. and, and the other thing we did was we shot devs last. So, so all of the pre-knowledge could get 
packed into that set. But broadly speaking, what happens is the first day you walk onto a set, you're not exactly sure how best to exploit it. And the longer you spend there, the more you realise, hey, look at the way the light filters through this window. And if she sat on the sofa there, look how beautiful... You you learn as you go. And um, uh, by the time then we got onto the dev set, that meant we, we knew a lot. We then, of course, had to learn how to shoot in that set, which was was a whole... You know, we, we were shooting on that set for as long as it took to shoot Ex Machina. So it was a really strange thing to be on one one place that long. But yeah, basically, in a practical point of view, we shot out the location, shot out the soundstage, moved on, but within it, shot in sequence. I don't know if this is a function specifically of devs um, or or even just the nature of, of, of storytelling in a series... Uh, but one thing that I, I, I felt was is that scenes had time and space to breathe, and that almost seemed to be important to the type of story you were telling. I, I'm curious how much of that is maybe your natural inclination as a storyteller and a visual storyteller, and how much of that is unique to devs, and how much of that is unique to now you can because you're, you got eight episodes instead of like a two-hour story to fill. I, th- I think it's a mixture of all of that, but it's also probably just a function of my age. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just about to turn 50, and uh, some of the television shows I grew up on were... Um, um, I, people probably won't know them, but th- there was there were two brilliant Alec Guinness adaptations of John le Carre novels, and um, one of the things I remembered and I rewatched them was that if you were not concentrating, um, you would not be able to follow the story. You, you, you could not be emailing and watching them at the same time. You just you just would not know what was going on, and there was something about that degree of focus that I liked. And then there was another series, very little known British television series called Edge of Darkness, that very bizarrely then got remade something like 20 years later as a Mel Gibson movie. But, but the original television series, uh, which I think Devs is very influenced by, you could, in the, in the ruthless, speedy storytelling that we get used to these days, mm-hmm. you could probably condense Edge of Darkness from maybe, I can't remember if it's six or seven episodes into three. But there's something about not doing that that's interesting. And uh, there's a value in oxygen. There's a value in time. There's a value in sitting on a shot to make people think about why the shot is being sat on. And uh, I, I said I said um, earlier that a lot of our effort in within the dev space was was about hypnosis, was about a sort of sense, a quality of hypnosis for the viewer as much as the people in it, uh, maybe mainly the viewer. And then what you have to do is you have to set the right landscape for the hypnosis, you know? It, it's like mm-hmm. a weird sort of um, giving over to, to the space and the pacing. Uh, so, you know... Uh, in in some ways very influenced by earlier things and in some ways a rather sort of deliberate bit of experimentation because because television and film, they're broad churches and not everything has to be a sugar rush. You know, I'm curious, you've been very clear in previous in other interviews that, you know, devs had to be a miniseries. You conceived of it as a miniseries, not as a film. Um, and you've also been very clear about um, enjoying a, a creative freedom in making it with FX. 
Uh, I'm curious off that and based on some of the things that we were just talking about, how does that influence you creatively moving forward in that sense of of conceiving of stories and and thinking of what you want to do? Is, is, is there a draw in your, I know you're saying devs had to be a series, but could you have imagined some of the, in a different time and age of, of maybe some of your previous work being conceived more of as a, as a series? Um, is that, are you looking for ideas that can think about that way based on the type of stories you want to tell and the way you want to work? Well, I mean, if I sort of do a Rolodex in my head backwards, I think some of them couldn't be series. I don't think Ex Machina could be a series. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a sort of, it, it's such a sort of single thought experiment that I think it would just start fraying at the edges if you tried to extend it. Whereas 28 Days Later, I think evidently from other long-running zombie TV shows probably could have been a series. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, but 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 what I'd say is that um, uh, partly... I just think there's so many ways of telling stories and there's so many forms they can take and long, short, mm. hot, cold, you know, um, that, and, and I'm lucky because I think I've probably got a degree of freedom in as much as that if I wanted to get not a big or medium budget film made, but if I wanted to get an independent level film made, provided I had a reasonable script, I'd have a good shot at getting it financed. And so, so I can... I can choose to an extent whether I want to work on a film or television show. All I can say is that at this moment, I'd I'd like to try and make another television show because there were elements about the long form aspect of it that I really loved. Um, The... I did have a lot of creative freedom from FX, but also time gives you a lot of creative freedom. Um, Being free from the the sort of ticking two-hour time bomb that, that a film presents you with you know uh, one just to, to finish up one thing i want to talk about was the casting of of devs um I, I you know i'm curious i mean there is a religious cult-like aspect that i have to think probably played a role in in and how you're conceiving uh, of this world in terms of a collection of characters this is the first time you've cast television and it's the first time you've worked with one of our favorites uh carmen cuba um I, i'm curious about um, the process of of casting devs and, and 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 kind of the thought process and also maybe the difference in in terms of casting a series over a movie. Um, if there is a difference, I wasn't aware of it, um, and uh, so I just I I just hunted for the people that uh, instinctively or or no, really, I guess instinctively, you just sort of feel are right. The the, the only. The only difference I remember thinking was that there were kind of conversations uh, within TV which were along the lines of, we shoot a pilot, and one of the reasons we shoot a pilot is because we might discover that one of the actors isn't right, and then we can swap them out. And that idea felt really alien to me, and I I sort of objected to it. I, I, I didn't like that idea at all. Um, uh, and um, it was one of the reasons I was pleased that for all sorts of practical reasons, we could not shoot a pilot because we didn't, there's no way we could have built the dev set and shot in San Francisco and shot in London and been bouncing between, it's just completely out of the question. And so I think I was freed of, of that kind of pilot type pressure that can exist. And I think one of the pressures it, 
it places on casting. Aside from that, I, I just approached it as I'd approach any other bit of casting, who feels right, that's all. I'm going to slip in one last one and you can take as long as you want to answer it because I know you're under kind of constraints. The score, there's so much score here um, and it's touching upon a, a whole bunch of different kind of ideas. Uh, it, it feels a little bit different and a little bit, uh, I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that because it's, 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 it's an incredible score, but it's also, I have to imagine a lot more than maybe even you thought going into something like this that you would use. Yeah. I mean, because none of us were experienced in working in television, we didn't, all we really knew is that we had to get a lot done in a shorter time frame than we were used to, I guess, it would be a really reductive way of looking at it. Um, uh, and so there's something about being out of your depth, which I think creatively is a good space to be. Um, uh, you're not falling back on things that you know work because you don't really know what works. And 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 definitely that really played out in the score. There are ways you could score an eight-part television show, which is would be essentially that you'd create four or five themes and you'd then sprinkle them throughout and roughly adapt them throughout. And I, all of us involved in the music felt very early on that just wasn't going to work because because episode eight is just wildly different from episode four. And, and they've all got completely different musical requirements. We can have some themes, there are some themes that repeat, but, but broadly speaking, we've got to approach each episode as being a thing in itself. And so it, put, it just put an enormous amount on the shoulders of the composers. Um, uh, ju- just in the, in the volume of what they had to do. And uh, that, and then what we did was we did it the way we do everything else, which is um, the composers get involved very early at the script stage. Um, so quite often things are scored where something is shot and then something beyond an assembly cut, you know, kind of like a rough cut, getting close to a locked cut. And then they get that and they score that. And maybe they turn that around in six weeks or four weeks or five weeks. Um, ben, Jeff and the Insects uh, read the scripts, came to pre-production meetings, came onto the set uh, and then saw not even assembly cuts, sort of scenes, sections of scenes. And the whole time we were organically working towards and, and, it, and it's a bit like editing. There's things you discover at the very, very last moment um, that that turn out to be fundamental. And so, so you're doing it right up to the wire. And it's, it's I, what can I say? They, they, they did a brilliant job. They're, they're an incredibly talented group of people and they have to work fucking hard because, <laughs> I mean, what, what, a, what a thing to take on, you know? But, but they, they knocked it out of the park, I think. All right. Alex, thank you so much and congratulations on the series. It's, it's, it's really wonderful. Uh, well, I appreciate it. Thank you very much indeed. And today's podcast was brought to you by Apple TV Plus and their original series, The Morning Show, which is for your consideration in all eligible Emmy categories, including Best Drama Series.